Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, man. Welcome to the Where Is Now podcast, episode six. Uh, I'm Billy Bunton, and my partner is Jesse Freeston. And uh, just a bit about our format every week, we go back and forth. One of us has to make a case for the impact of a person, an idea, a movement, anything, an impact uh, in this world. And uh, the other comments and learns and discusses. Yeah, and it could be it could be somebody who's having that impact, or somebody that we feel like should have that impact. And today, somebody that did have that impact, maybe he's not having it anymore. And maybe with the power mm. of this podcast, we will bring them back to their rightful place as a model person for us. That's right. Potentially. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that case. We'll see if Billy's convinced. We'll see, Jesse. <laughs> what do you got for us out here? Okay, well, well, first up, to bring us into this, I want to talk about a comment that was made, which I think the response to is a, is a really good sign of progress. Drew Brees uh, made a comment that I think a few years ago would have been in the media landscape mostly uncontroversial and now is a massive controversy in which he is forced to apologize immediately. Andrew Brees is an NFL quarterback, Hall of Famer to be, has an amazing arm and touch and is just a great talent and is well-loved in the community. Actually, he plays for the New Orleans Saints and he's well-loved as someone who supports people, the low-income communities uh, uh, in New Orleans and people who suffered during and after Hurricane Katrina and other uh, things pertinent to that region. I mean, he's he's beloved for all this. So it was a big shock when recently he was kind of caught in a controversy. Drew, Dan Roberts here. Thanks for joining us. Everyone is looking back now at Kaepernick's protests from a few years ago, and obviously they were always about police brutality, and now it's coming back to the fore, and a lot of people expect that we will see players kneeling again even when the NFL season starts. I'm curious how you think the NFL will and should respond to that, and of course, you're such a leader in the league, uh, what is your responsibility as a leader uh, in times like this? Well, I, I will I will never agree with anybody uh, disrespecting the flag of the United States of America or our country. Um, let me let me just tell you what I see or what I feel when the national anthem is played and when I look at the the flag of the United States. I envision my two grandfathers who fought for this country during World War II, one in the Army and one in the Marine Corps both risking their lives to protect our country and to try to make our country and this world a better place. So every time I stand with my hand over my heart, looking at that flag and singing the national anthem, that's what I think about. And in many cases, it brings me to tears. And he had to walk it back. He was really kind of roundly criticized for it. And he's reached out to people like the guy you're about to play, like Shannon Sharp. Shannon Sharp, also, um Hall of Famer. Breeze will probably be a Hall of Famer, right? He's the all-time leader in passing and stuff. And so yes. This is a Hall of Famer criticizing a Hall of Famer to be. The military that you valiantly speak of has been very disrespectful for the black man. Because even the GI Bill, when it came home and blacks were supposed to be allowed to get money and to buy nice homes, that wasn't how it happened, Skip. The medals that they fought for and won for bravery and valor and heroism. They didn't get those. They had to fight for them, and a lot of them was awarded those medals posthumously, mm -hmm. meaning they got their flowers after they were dead. Well, white men was coming home and getting medal after medal after medal. 
And Drew somehow thinks that the flag is supposed to mean the exact same thing for a black man as a white man, when this country has never been mm -hmm. the same for a black man as a white man. Drew, what country do you live in? You live in a country that has afforded you privileges and luxury that the black man has never been afforded mm -hmm. and received. And you're so set in your ways that you were unwilling. Skip, I remember I told you, Skip, the man, the man that can't see isn't the blindest. It's the one that chooses not to see. Drew Brees true chooses to make this about the flag as opposed to the, the plight of the unarmed black men and women being killed in this America. Here's the quote, the blindest is not the one who cannot see, but the one who chooses not to see. Mm -hmm. Today I want to talk about a woman who chose to see even though physically she could not, who chose to hear even though physically she was unable to. And today I'm going to make the case for Helen motherfucking Keller. Oh shit. As a timeless role model for allyship and progress. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm interested to hear this case, man. When I say Helen Keller, Billy, like what is what, what comes to mind? Uh, Helen Keller, what comes to mind? Uh, a young girl who's blind, deaf, who's lacking several of the senses that we all take for granted um, and somehow emerged from that, uh, you know, with the ability to express like great ideas, you know, um, about about humanity, and she's just a, she exemplifies kind of like struggle and and success over like difficult odds. Mm. And other than that, really, I, I know very little else. I know the historical context as well um, around her and uh, the time of her life. But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm excited for this case because I really I can't call myself a Helen Keller ex expert at all. Well, I wasn't either. But I picked up like everything Helen Keller ever, ever, ever wrote to get, to get into this because Helen Keller was always this, this fascinating person for me. Like, I, I love jokes and, and just the only thing I knew about Helen Keller growing up, I didn't know anything she did. I just knew that she was deaf and blind. And there was all these terrible Helen Keller jokes that I thought were hilarious as right. a kid. Right. And um, I remember some of those. Yeah. Do you remember it? Do you remember any right now? I'm trying to remember one. Hold on. <laughs> um, I can't remember. They're terrible. Right now. They're <laughs> terrible. There's there's one. It was like, uh, how did Kellen Keller burn her hand? And it was because she was trying to read the waffle iron. Like there's just like oh my god, just like a lot yeah, of, yeah. stuff a lot like of that. Ones. Yeah, um, I remember. Like I don't. Yeah. There was one. It was like. Um, why didn't Helen Keller scream when she fell off a cliff? And it was because she was wearing mittens. Oh, man. And it was just terrible, like, just really ter Yikes. terrible stuff. And there was way yeah. worse ones than that. Um, and yeah. actually, I'm, I'm going to get into that a little later. But that was like, I loved those little jokes when I was a kid. And uh, I loved all jokes like that. And, um, and then, but when I got older and I found out that she was this activist who had been kind of censored, that she was this... Uh, person that was so highly celebrated when she stuck to talking about her own life and her own struggles and then as soon as she started to talk about broader social things they were like you know cut the mic you know she, she doesn't know what she's talking about Enough. Um, and and i'd been meeting i had been meaning to get into a little bit of like how she arrived at her larger political beliefs and th without being able to see or hear and how that would affect kind of her her worldview um and so th this has been this is what i've been into for the past week i've been trying to figure this out so just a few things about an introduction to, to Helen's world. Helen's name 
comes from the Greek word eleni, which means light, hmm. something she can't perceive, which is interesting. Um, and in ancient Greece, blindness alone, not just being blindness and deaf, but blindness alone was considered justification for parents to kill their children. Mm. So just like to, to give a sense of, you know, where at least the like Western civilization has come, there's the same in Rome as well. In terms of Western civilization coming and, and the achievements of, of people with disability and stuff like that, like that's, that's where this great light of democracy of Greece was when it came to people who were blind. And then Helen's right. born blind and deaf. Was it just deaf and blind, Jesse? Was there, I, I thought that, you know, I'm sure this isn't the appropriate term, but I thought it was blind, deaf, and, and dumb. Is that true? And dumb. Or no? well, so dumb, d- yeah, dumb meaning you can't speak. Um, exactly. It's not the appropriate. Is that, what's she, the? She did learn to speak. So okay. we could say uh, there was a time when she was considered blind, deaf, and dumb, but uh, she did learn to speak. Yeah. Which is okay. a, was a, another massive achievement. That's crazy. Which we probably won't even get to amongst all the massive achievements. So. It's believed that in the 20th century, there was less than 50 children in the world who were both blind and deaf. And it's a pretty rare combination to, to end up with both. And Helen uh, fell ill at 19 months. She was born healthy and she got what they believe was probably scarlet fever when she was 19 months old and lost both her sight and her hearing 100%, like um, zero perception in either sense. See, she was so angry and destructive as a child. She used to set fires. She dumped her newborn sister out of the crib. She would routinely smash dishes or anything she could get her hands on. She locked her mom in a closet for hours one time. Her mom told a friend once, fate has ambushed the joy in my heart and left it dead. Fate. Fate. Like the fate of Mm. her... daughter losing these uh, senses. Those are strong words. One of the worst days of Helen's life, she says, is when she happened to have her hands on two people's faces at the same time and realized that they were moving their mouths like in concert. So like one, basically one was talking then the other was talking. So like that was the moment she realized that the rest of the world was communicating and she couldn't be part of it. She said she kicked and screamed that day until she literally exhausted herself and had no energy left. You know, you could say like, oh, I'm going to put earplugs in. I'm going to cover my eyes and I'll spend a whole day like that. And then I'll get a sense of what life was like for Helen Keller as a kid. But you still wouldn't come even close because first of all, you would be, you know, at some point you're going to be able to take it off again. Second, the environment you've in, you've probably already seen it, which is a huge advantage. And the third thing is, and this is the key thing is, you know, the meaning of words, which is such a strange thing to point out. But you'll see that this was the challenge of of Helen's upbringing and, and she was crazy seven years old when she first learned of the existence of words that like the things that she was bumping into and touching and had a word associated with them and that they related to each other and and she calls that the day that her teacher gave her her soul wow her biographer said Helen's challenges would have crushed anyone less stoic Billy's keyword adaptable and protected mm. So mm. stoic and adaptable being, you know, qualities that people can develop as individuals um, and protection being something that your society affords you. Yeah. And so Helen uh, was born in Alabama to a former captain of the Confederate Army, a former slaveholding family, which still had black servants living with them. They weren't considered one of the wealthier families in Alabama, but they definitely had wealth. Uh, they had land and, and they have people working, living and working with, for them, you know, serving them. 
and her dad was the editor, had become the editor of the local newspaper, but wasn't considered particularly bright and would eventually lose that job. And that's when things got a little messy in the house. Mm. So stoic, adaptable, or open-minded, um, go with the flow, uh, and, and protected. That's really interesting. Really interesting, uh, set of, uh, choices there. Yeah. Those, those, those make a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, the stoicism speaks to a mindset that can help you uh, make sense of things. And then adaptable is like, <laughs> makes sense as well. But yeah, the, the, the other part that isn't, it's a stroke of luck. You know, some of this is not pertained to you. The whole self-made man, self-made individual is a bit of a, a joke. Yeah. And I think it points to this false choice, which is the false choice is you either believe that people make of their lives what they make of them, regardless of the hand that's dealt to them. And maybe even you live in denial about the hand that you've been dealt or that others have been dealt and things like this. And you see this in like the celebration online all the time of people like Morgan Freeman, you know, when they were, when they'll say stuff like uh, racism only exists if we say it does, you know, look at me, I've got a great career. Uh, let's just stop talking about it. Um, and they're celebrated for that perspective, you know, and then, and Helen Kellner is just a, a great example of, of a person who found a way, you know, with the help of a, of a, of a visionary and very patient teacher um, to go v- much further than any person of her time with her challenges ever had or ever, period, mm. probably, maybe, but did mm. so in a way that didn't leave others behind. You know, did so in a way that didn't say, look, I did it, just, just do what I did. You know, she always used her voice uh, or her words to fight for a, a fairer deck of car- cards, I guess we could call it, for everybody. You know what strikes, strikes me real quick? The, 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 the moment she realizes that people are communicating by, by touching the mouths and seeing them. Wow. Like, I actually, I, I, I'd love to get into the concept of communicating, and I know we will. Um, just as a concept, what it means yeah. and what it does, uh, that must have been crazy to, to figure that out after just dealing with, I guess, darkness and nothingness i don't know what it sounds like i suppose right but yeah and to notice that there's there's something else and there are people <laughs> exchanging images and ideas and sounds and that you've been left out of that <clears throat> wow yeah yeah and so uh, why don't we go to to this clip from this 1962 movie called the miracle worker which covers uh-huh. like the first eight years or seven years of uh, of helen's life um and particularly her relationship with her teacher Ann Sullivan, who we'll get into later, um, who's, a, who's a necessary person to talk about in this story. It doesn't, none of this happens without her. So the first voice you're gonna hear is uh, Ann Sullivan, her teacher, talking to Captain Keller, uh, Helen Keller's dad. I don't think Helen's worst handicap is deafness or blindness. I think it's your love and pity. All of you are so sorry for you have kept her like a pet. Or even a dog, your housebreak. And so what you see here is Helen. This is Anne's first night in the house, and they're eating dinner. And she sees how the family lets Helen just wander around the table, bothering people, eating, eating directly off the table. And, and then when she comes to put her hands on Anne's plate, Anne just grabs her and says, hell no. And this whole thing is all about how she's from the beginning and it's like, no, you're going to be treated like a normal child. And we're going to figure out how you're going to exist in this world like everybody else. And you're not going to be treated like a pet, you know, as she says to 
to Helen's parents. You know, you, so even dogs get house trained. And this scene is like straight out of WWF. You see, you know, just trying to force the kid to learn how to eat with a spoon. This is, I think it's one of the most epic scenes I've ever seen in film. This scene goes on for like, it goes on for like 10 minutes. They must have been exhausted filming this thing. Like, wow. And then this moment she turns around and she thinks she's won and, <laughs> and she spits the food right in her face. It's just, <laughs> it's just epic. I mean, it's, it's 1962. I'm sure this scene would be criticized as horrible child abuse. Um, if it was to be, to come out in 2020. Absolutely. And then here's the quote at the end. What happened? She ate from her own plate. She ate with a spoon. Herself. And she folded her napkin. Folded her napkin? The room's a wreck, but her napkin is folded. Mmm. Mmm. Love that. Yeah. That's tight. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that an epic quote? At the end? That is amazing, yeah. The room's a wow. wreck, but her napkin is folded. <laughs> <laughs> Why does that take me back to Michael Jordan? Right? Yeah. Like, had to be a bit of an asshole for a moment there, I guess. I, I want to hear mm. more about the context around that, but it seems, you know, there's a kind of... I hate the term tough love because it seems to me like a cliche or something, but it's, it's, it's purely, it's not tough for toughness sake. The point isn't to be tough. The point is to um, assert something even when it's difficult. And so mm -hmm. it is to say that that's the goal. So even when like the, the perfect the quote at the end, the room's a mess, but the goal was to, to fold the, the napkin. We got that done. And in order to do that, there was, there was a bit of a brouhaha. Um, right. But but that was a necessary condition for the goal, um, and uh, and I think that's that's inspiring. It brings me back to Michael Jordan, and sometimes it means that some people will, you know, Helen didn't like her at first. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. And and it's it's you know there's a big di there's the, the difference between between having pity for somebody and having expectations for that person. You know what I mean? Like I think I think we need to have expectations for each other. Yes. And that and then and then you try to live up to those expectations, and especially the younger you are the more you need others to put those expectations on you. Uh, yes. The harder it is for you to self-generate those expectations and try to live up to them, you know? You don't have a frame of reference. You know nothing, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, so those of us who, I mean, uh, clearly for her, to, her family was able to afford a teacher of that caliber uh, was an advantage and a very lucky advantage, you know? That yeah. somebody like her will never, will never even dream to have, even today, even by today's uh, standards. One of the interesting things to point out about it, the name of the film is that both Anne and Helen hated people talking about anything to do with their story as miracles. Mm. Like, <laughs> it's like they're on the record numerous times rejecting this frame. They put in so many hours and so much work. It's like, a, it made me think about like Einstein, how he would always reject the title of genius when he would say, you know, if you, if you saw how much work it was, you would never call it genius. Right. And, and so, but anyways, you know, Hollywood is like, yeah, we're just going to call it the miracle worker. And then they yeah. simplify a whole bunch of other things about the story too. You know, like the opening scene is basically like a newborn Helen crying and it's like, oh no, she's blind and deaf. And, and the mother freaking out, realizing she can't see or hear. 
and but really it happened when she was 19 months and I and I can't imagine Helen was still alive I think when this film came out and I can't imagine them having to explain to Helen yeah we changed this about the story and this about the story when she's right. never seen a movie you know, it's like it's like well you have to understand wow. movies have to you know play a little bit with weird might have been a weird situation they always do that so Hollywood is infamous for doing that right because their whole business is telling stories and they have formats and, and formulas that they think works um, yeah. for them but I think just generally you know there's this tendency to simplify stuff and I don't know I don't know why that is um, oh. why why call something a miracle to me I, I find it it's an effort to if someone does something really uh, noteworthy and we don't want to do the work to think about the process yeah. it's like miracle when in fact that's, that's kind of insulting it's like the, and you see it all the time with like uh lebron james for instance you know who is just a hard-working man ever since you know and a young boy and but mm -hmm. he's get he gets reduced to a a phenom a physical phenom right. which he is as well you it's, know yeah but it's it's important to note for those of us who also worked really hard and didn't make it to that level it's like well you know <laughs> if we were six foot nine born with that frame and like you know it's like we would have had certain advantages. It's good to know about exactly. the phenomenal aspects of his physicality, but to reduce him to that is, uh, is, a, is a, well, an injustice to him and all the work he put in. Okay, so here's another clip from 1962, The Miracle Worker. And this is now we're getting into how Ann Sullivan taught Helen Keller um, how to speak. And the, the language you're gonna see here that, they're, that she's using is called the manual alphabet. So it's basically like there's a shape, a hand shape for each letter. Some of them are, mm. you know, like pretty obvious, you know, like that, like a B is kind of like what a B looks like, but then some of them don't really aren't recognizable as the letter, but it's a, it's a manual alphabet. I taught her one thing. No, don't do this. Don't do that. That's more than all of us could do in all I the years. I wanted to teach her what language is. I know without it to do nothing but obey is no gift. Obedience without understanding is a blindness too. Is that all I wished on her? I wanted to teach you. Oh, everything the earth is full of, Helen. Everything on it, it's ours for a wink and it's gone. And what we are on it. The light we bring to it and leave behind in words. Well, you can see 5,000 years back in the light of words. Everything we feel, think, know and share in words. So not a soul is in darkness, or done with even in the grave. How do I tell you that this means a word, and the word means this thing, whoa. So water is the first time she realizes that these strange symbols that Anne's putting into her hand are letters that build words that refer to real things in reality. She writes in her autobiography, she says, that living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, set it free. There were barriers still, but barriers that could be in time swept away. Everything now had a name and each name gave birth to a new thought, 
I saw everything with the strange new sight that had come to me. And then one of these dolls that she had smashed earlier in the day um, when she was trying to teach her the word for doll, she came back and for the first thing, she, she found the doll smashed on the ground. So she learned 30 words that day in her first day. Mm. Um, and that's what you see mm. in the clip where she's learning about tree. And yeah. then she came back and found this doll that she'd smashed and she, her eyes filled with tears. And she said, quote, for the first time I felt repentance and sorrow. It's, it's, it's hard for me to get my head around. You know, this is like a seven-year-old. This is so many years after kids are developing their relationships and developing their understandings of things and dealing with all the different emotions. And up until this point, she's mostly only just felt anger and, and fear and, and hasn't been able to develop any of these other things. And, it's, and then words unlock this, like this whole human experience for her. And it's wild. And she says... It would have been difficult to find a happier child than I was at the end of that eventful day. For the first time in my life, I longed for a new day to come. Wow. Yeah. Wow. She, she, she has this new awakening, a reckoning, and realizes that she's on the precipice of this like bounty of all of these new words and items and people and things that has escaped her for what seven years you said so she's seven at this yeah. point or ten yeah she's seven, seven. Mm -hmm. to even just like to open to have the mind open in that that's an epiphany but a huge sounds like a huge epiphany one that most of us will never be able to ima imagine because we're doing that in a much slower process you know from birth to you know every little experience with our um, mm -hmm. parents and onward you know at seven that's insane it's a crazy story I don't I don't really remember as a kid like those those moments of like having a word unlock something for me and being like oh and now i have this tool and now i can ask for this thing you know instead of just crying or like too young to remember that feeling but as an adult or like uh, one as a teenager and one as an adult uh there's i can think of two words that like that made my life better like i was just it would just allowed me to recognize something and the first one i remember was indifference you know, and I, mm -hmm. and I remember like learning the concept of indifference as being like a terrible thing and it, and as being just as responsible for evil in the world as the evil deeds themselves. I just, I just remember that word having a lot of power for me uh, like and still that. does. Yeah. And then one, as I became later, which like gave me a lot of, of freedom was uh, FOMO. When I found FOMO? out about the word FOMO. Fear of missing out? Yeah, like I, I think up until finding out about the word FOMO, I would be a difficult person to hang out with one on one on a Friday night. Like I think, you know, like mm. I, I think part of me would have just been twitching a little bit. Like you know, I'm sure there's something really cool going on somewhere. Like oh, you know, let's figure out where the where the party's at. Like, and finding out that there's this term FOMO, fear of missing out. It's not a good thing, and other people are experiencing it too. And it's really you know has a negative effect on kind of your 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 relationships and your the quality of the time that you're spending where you're at right now. Um, right. Just like knowing it existed allowed me just immediately to kind of like get rid of it. You know, what's crazy. So, so yeah. So you, in order to learn it and get rid of it, what it also takes me is, so can you imagine being a young transgender person in the thirties of America, you know, and mm. there's no language, there's no vernacular to understand the feelings that are going on in, in your body and in your mind. Um, and if anything, if anything, it's being subordinated, you're being told that something potentially is wrong with you. Right. Um, and then you have this awakening 
that is still happening. We're not, we don't have this awakening yet. But I mean to say that the conversation around gender is so different today. We have language. We have like so many different lists of genders um, as people are attempting to understand the phenomena of gender mm -hmm. and sexuality. Um, it's completely different. You're different. I, 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 and I'm not a transgender person, so I don't want to speak for the community, but I want to say, I don't know, if, if you're someone in, in different stages of privilege, certain words, this, this kind of new language isn't something you're seeking, you know what I mean, in the mm -hmm. same way? So, yeah. you know, you know the, the, the world, the stories, the narratives all validate stuff that you know, and you don't have this thing that you have to, like, what, what is that even, how can I articulate this? Um, and I don't know, the transgender conversation to me exemplifies new words, new language. Um, and just changing the entire complexity of the conversation and giving people a voice, giving people the opportunity to be heard and to be empathized with. I say even on the other end, those people who, who you know, to be able to understand better with, with these mm -hmm. words. I don't know. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's got to be hard for, for people like, um, who have an identity that's not necessarily understood broadly by the mainstream to, because when they get interrogated on their identity, it's it's got to be hard to differentiate between those that are coming at it from a place of love and curiosity i'll call it like um of like trying to understand your reality trying to understand what you, what what your what your situation is what your identity means to you and what what it means how i should operate around you like differently or something like this you know versus right. somebody who's coming at it from uh, a desire to put you down or um you know b cast shade on your group as a whole or whatever it might be um, when exactly. they come at you with questions and uh, like in terms of exactly. so trying to differentiate trying to figure out people's motivations got to be tough and to bring it back to Helen Keller this is somebody who like I as a curious person like I always respect curious people They're, I can hang out with a, like a curious active mind for hours even on a Friday night now thanks to FOMO no, f <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> no more FOMO good job <laughs> and like so here's an example from Helen Keller's autobiography of like the depth of her curiosity there's two things that, that make her education kind of privileged in many ways one is that she has a one-on-one -on -one teacher um right. which is probably hard to imagine a world in which every kid can have a one-on-one -on -one teacher every day it doesn't right. really make sense numbers wise but it but it does say something about classroom sizes i remember like i i, w I was in grade six after they made major cuts or sixth grade as you guys called in the u.s um when they made major <laughs> cuts in the, in the ontario school system in, uh, yeah. in canada and we had like 36 kids in the class with one teacher and it, you know it's it's not yeah. a really it's not a really great situation for the teacher or for anybody in terms of trying to get learning done standard that's standard out here in new york man 36 growing up that's that's what it was for sure 36 yeah, yeah. 40 around there yeah yeah, eh? yeah that's mm -hmm. not that's not easy and then no. and then the other thing is that they would spend a lot of time outside so helen actually talks about how most of my lessons never felt like lessons like i never felt like i was in a lesson but I was learning all the time. So they would go Wait, for she, these long she, walks. Oh, because, okay, this is just with her teacher. She's not in a classroom. This is her and the teacher. Right, okay. right. This is with gotcha. the teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And later we'll talk about when she goes to university and her critiques of university. So like she would learn geography and would like make models of larger geographic things like mountains and rivers in the sand, like on the creek side or whatever, using little rocks and Helen would run her hand over it and she'd be like, now imagine this, you know, a million times bigger or whatever. That's a river. And like she would teach her geography and things like this, like that. And wow. um, anyway, so they were on one of their walks one day. There was, uh, it was Anne, Helen and, and one of uh, Helen's cousins, I believe. And they were out, they stayed out too long and they were trying to get back uh, before sunset. And so they decided to take a shortcut over a, 
train bridge. So a bridge mm. just for with only room for a train. And so imagine Helen, I don't, it doesn't even, she doesn't even explain exactly how it went down in the autobiography. Cause like, I'm trying to imagine this, but so the trains, all of a sudden there's a train coming and they're halfway across the bridge and there's no room on the bridge for them to get out of the way. And I guess Anne has to quickly sign the situation into Helen's hand and that they're going to, they're going to climb down under the bridge and hold on while the train, while the steam engine cast iron, whatever massive train comes over their heads. This is a true story, Jesse. This is a true story. And okay, okay, wow. like I said, like the mechanics of exactly how the communication went down that quickly and whatever is not in her autobiography. Um, uh. and, but she says, as she's hanging under this bridge and the bridge is swaying, she says, I felt the hot breath of the engine on my face and its smoke and ashes choked us. The bridge swayed and I was certain we would fall into the chasm below. But I just look like she's having this like poetic reflection on like, oh, yeah. this... And she, she goes on to talk about this massive engine and must have been the most terrifying situation. You know, it's like, I, like yeah. I don't even know if she knows what a train is. You know what I mean? Right, like, I don't even right. know if they've reached that lesson yet. And That's just crazy. to have that force of this thing shaking the bridge and the heat coming yeah. out. Like, and she's just, she's filled with curiosity, even in this moment of mm -hmm. like close to death, you know? I'm, I'm sure um, with hindsight, I'm sure she wrote that, you know, two days later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, it had to, <laughs> it wasn't like in yeah. the moment. She's like, yeah. she's <laughs> making it um, no, but no, that's, that's yeah. nuts though. And then they went to Plymouth Rock at age eight, when she was eight, when they were visiting Massachusetts. She, you know, she had just been told that this is where the great men who started America had landed and they were so brave. Um, and she's writing this now in her early twenties when she's, uh, at university at Harvard. And she says, I idealized them as the bravest and most generous men that ever sought a home in a strange land. I thought they mm. desired the freedom of their fellow men as well as their own. I was keenly surprised and disappointed years later to learn of their acts of persecution that tingle us with shame, even when we glory in the courage and energy that gave us our country beautiful. So like, you know, like this is somebody who's, who is romantic, like falling in love with ideas of these great men and their great deeds. But then as soon as she is confronted with a, with a narrative that, that, that um, at least gives it another dimension that of some of the terrible things they did. She exactly. she, she's willing to abandon her her other narrative and complicate it, you know? Yes. Um, yeah, I, I like that. Not even abandon, because, you know, you, you need not abandon, but, like, incorporate it into your narrative. That goes back to the to the conversation yeah. again. Um, and a lot of times if you, if you, so she is the recipient of this new information and, you know, what I notice is like based on whether you have like a personal agenda that you may or may not know of or a fear or a trauma or you're, you have an attachment, you have an ego thing. It's all these ways that you don't receive the information. You just put up a, a put up a block or you find a way to to put it away. You say, well, that that's a outlier, you know, and you put it into a thing as opposed to incorporating it and saying, OK, this is this is now a new reality that I have to deal with, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I think. I agree with that. And I think just to, to wrap up kind of Helen's opening to the world, this is a quote from her. She said, I lived myself into all things. And I've had that just like going around in my head. Lived myself in all things. So then she goes to university. She becomes one of the first women. So this is at a time when Harvard didn't accept women. So they opened up a college basically with the same curriculum. I don't know if it was exactly the same curriculum, but 
a heart you could get a Harvard education as a woman you just had to go to Radcliffe College had to go to who and Radcliffe College oh yeah uh, okay so oh. it was because they you couldn't be in the same institution as the men and right. it was very very few women and one of, one of them in the early days was the blind deaf Helen Keller crazy reminds reminds us of the time period we're in and that like she's also a woman you know it's like we're talking the the turn of the century what is she studying at harvard or at uh, radcliffe she would study languages so she spoke french german and latin on top of english can can i cut you off for a second what like you're someone who's a a polyglot you you speak several languages at least three pretty damn fluently like so the idea of like incorporating new words you know like i know if i go i'm my first language is french but i've since lost a lot of it and i go back to guadalupe and i have something i want to ask my aunt and that little Mm -hmm. that's struggling and then you get it and you have this oh yes you know and now you're able to communicate that like you you have that you're familiar with that absolutely absolutely and and sometimes it's fascinating to find a word in another language that is that just works better for you for whatever reason than the word you have in your uh, your first language or whatever it might be. Yeah. So like I think about mm-hmm. in Spanish, like one of my favorite words in Spanish is uh, desahogarse, which is the equivalent of in English we talk about to vent. Venting like when you, you, you like me and you and we're talking when we're pissed off about something and we, we come and we just dump on the other person like all this shit right. that you're thinking about. And, um, and venting is something where, you know, it's like you're getting out the hot air or whatever, but like venting is something you could just do in theory. You could just do it all day to everybody all the time. You could just, just vent as a verb, as a metaphor, right? Whereas desahogarse, ahogar is to drown. Hmm. Desahogar is to undrown. Desahogarse makes it reflexive, so it's undrown yourself. Now, I don't, Mm. like, I've talked to a lot of Spanish speakers about this, and I think, I think it's not like when they use it, they think of the metaphor every time. You know what I mean? Like, I think they, they use it in the same way that we use vent. You know, we don't think about the metaphor. But... I think about the metaphor because it's not my first language. So like when right. I, when I learned that, I was like, that is such a cool metaphor. So it's like, you can't breathe, you're drowning. Like, you know what I mean? You've got this water in your lungs and then you, you go and you, and you spit up onto the table, all that shit that was stopping you from breathing. And fantastic. you know, there's like all this salt water in a bag of Doritos and a boot or whatever the hell you swallow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, and then the other person goes, damn. Yeah. Like, damn, you had a lot of yeah. stuff in there. Like you had a lot of, I can't believe you had Doritos yeah. bag in there. And then just that allows you to breathe now. Yeah. And the power of the word for me is that you do it once, you, like you should only have to do it once unless it's something terrible. You know what I mean? It's like, okay. unless it's something that's yeah. really affecting your life. It's like for the smaller things, it's like do it once, feel better. Yeah. You know, like I breathe like again, you know, and move on. Yeah. Whereas venting, you could just do all day. Yeah, there's something implied in it is a cathartic, uh, thing and a like a psychological like a health there's a health benefit implied in there i think yeah. maybe invent too right like more oxygen and blah 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 but i like that dope so she at at uh, at university yes one of the things that she was the most pissed off about was that that there was no time to think that there was no time to reflect she was like we just run around shoving stuff into our heads and we never reflect on what it means and how it should change our reality. And we're getting all these huge ideas. Her, her favorite class was philosophy because, and, and when she explained why it made total sense where it was like, this was a place where she really could connect with everybody else. You know what I mean? Cause like 
philosophy, like how do you deal with rejection? How do you deal with problems? How do you, how do you approach the world regardless of your situation or whatever? Like what are these meta approaches and understandings yeah. and what's real and what's not? And, and so she can, she can go to battle with any sighted hearing person yeah. in the yeah. world of philosophy. That's crazy. And mm-hmm. in fact, she might be better prepared because she contemplation is like her game. That's what she does. She loved it. And this is when she started to really get political. She, are, she always had, like from a very early age, and this might have been the influence of Anne, uh, who's her teacher, who had grown up very poor. Most of her siblings died. Her dad was an alcoholic who abandoned the family after her mom died. This is Anne. Yeah, this is Anne. Okay. Uh, she was Irish at a time when the Irish were not particularly welcome. Um, mm. in the United States. So she, her parents were from Ireland. They had left during the Great Potato Famine, uh, which is a terrible name for a period in history in which the British were continuing to import food from Ireland and a quarter of the Irish population died and they had to flee the island, mostly to North America. And the British were still importing food. And it's known to history as the Great Famine or the Great Potato Famine. Really? Because the potato crop failed, yeah. right? But then the British were still importing meat like uh, into England while the Irish were dying of starvation. So her parents come over during that time. And like what happens often when, immig- when a group of immigrants comes over en masse and comes over very poor is the society that receives them develops a lot of racism towards them. And so Anne was in like the second generation of that gotcha. anti-Irish sentiment after the famine. So, and then she ended up actually um, growing up mostly in a, in a homeless uh, shelter. And she was there with her brother after the dad, her alcoholic father abandoned them. And she was partially blind. And her, her brother died within the first year of being there from tuberculosis. And yeah, she was raped many times um, as a kid in living there. It was like, she had a really, really terrible thing. And she came out of it with like a real sense of unhappiness with the status quo. So she was in, from Massachusetts. And she was infuriated when she arrived in Alabama and saw the state of the black servants. Mm. And one of the things that you'll see with Anne is that she even doesn't want Helen's parents speaking directly with Helen. She doesn't want to teach them, particularly the father, the manual alphabet. She doesn't want them having an influence on Helen. She doesn't want them passing on their values to Helen. Because of, yes, okay. In large part because of how they see the world. And and she was so put off by this situation of the black servants. So I think this, this, like uh, Helen got some of this stuff from Anne, but I think there's some evidence that's inside her too. At age 11, uh, when she starts to become a bit famous and there's all these articles about her having learned to uh, communicate, somebody sends her $35, which is a lot of money at the time. She immediately sends it to uh, a five-year-old boy in Pittsburgh named Tommy Stringer, who was deaf and blind and had no money. Um, in order to pay for him to come to Boston and go to the school that had trained Anne uh, so that he could learn language. So like she, she's got this sense from a very young age of, of bringing other people up with her. Yeah. And so in 1913, she comes out as a socialist with a series of essays called Out of the Dark. Just a little side note, 20 years later, it would be one of the books that the Nazis would burn in their pile mm. of books to be burned when Goebbels did the massive book burning. One of her essays is called The Hand of the World. She writes, As I write this, I am sitting in a pleasant house, warmly clad, secure against want, sure that what my welfare requires, the world will give. Through my surroundings, I feel the touch of a hand, invisible but potent, all-sustaining. 
the hand that wove my clothes, the hand that stretched this roof over my head, the hand which printed the pages that I read. So I think it's interesting is that I heard somebody talk about materialism and how our age gets criticized as being materialist. And they were like, no, 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 we're consumerist. It's a very different thing. A materialist would recognize the value in material things and mm. would, would have an interest in knowing how they became how they are, where did they come from, who made them, all these things. And you see Helen Keller, I think it, I think it might have something to do with that she's, she lives by touch, primarily. Yeah. I mean, you can only get so far with smell right. and taste. It's mostly by touch that she interprets the world. And she's yeah. a materialist. She is, is infinitely interested in who made this thing, how did it get here, what's going on. And then the more she finds out about that, the more enraged she gets about the, the injustices of the capitalist system. I like your definition of materialist versus consumerist. And it sounds like just, a, I, I continue to try to put myself in her shoes uh, to be lacking in these things, these, these senses. I mean, they're, they're everything. I can't, you can't even begin, you know, you can just try. Mm. I don't know, she sounds like just her mind and her desire to understand things has to be just burning nonstop. And so she, and for her to understand even that there are others who have the similar, similar hunger and who, who will never get it satisfied in, in the way that she did. And for her to care about that, uh, amazing. You could not get enough, like if you do a newspaper search, I was doing newspaper searches from, from the period of like 1889 is basically when her story busts open that there's this young girl who can communicate despite being deaf and, and blind. And then from then until 1913, She's all over the place. And all they want to hear about her from her is two things, basically. They want her to describe her unique and, which I, I agree, I'm very curious about it too. What is her internal life like? What is the world like for her? How does she do the things she does? How does she learn? What's her relationship like with her teacher? Is she being controlled by her teacher? Blah, 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 blah. Like very specific details about right. that relationship. And the other thing they want to hear is, you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. We can all do it. It's just a matter of putting your head to it. And these are both important things and good messages, right? But yeah. as soon as she comes out and talks about the protection part and who's protected in our society, who isn't, who has access to this, who doesn't, they uh, cut, you know, cut the mic. Just they want they want a con a confirming narrative, man, and that's it. I mean, that's that's the nature of of uh, any set of institutions. But go ahead. Yeah, they they would use the fact that she can't see and that she can't hear. As now it was this, whereas exactly. the same newspaper editors who before <laughs> were like, it's so amazing. She's amazing. Right. She's a genius. She can do all these things, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And now it's like, oh, but she can't do this because she's deaf and, and blind. Exactly. You know, it's like she, it was, it was celebrated when it wasn't criticizing the status quo. And now it's like, well, you can't trust anything she says because she's deaf and blind. And so she would, right. she would incorporate this into her language. So she said, you know, she's criticizing customs blindly obeyed. And she's talking about how she's coming out of the dark. Is this is this a shut up and shut up and dribble kind of thing? This is totally a shut up and dribble thing. This is absolutely a shut up and dribble thing. Because the problem is they've built her up to be this perfect being. And so now she's turned on them by basically saying that we have to get rid of the capitalist system. And now so all these newspapers that have and radios and things like this who have pumped her up all this time now have to find figure out a way to bring her down. So most of them just do it by not publishing anything about her. 
um, ignoring her and ignoring this new perspective of hers or this perspective that she's going yeah. public with now. But a lot of them start to describe her as having been captured as this kind of a victim, kind of a hostage of the communists, of the socialist movement. Uh, and that she's not clearly, she's clearly not speaking for herself and, and, uh, and this sort of thing. And Which is really not a new tactic. Um, this is something that we, are, we just experienced Juneteenth. Um, and today we talk about Martin Luther King Jr. in glowing terms. But uh, when he was alive and doing the great work that he was doing, um, he was treated with disdain by the biggest media outlets of the time. Uh, and in part, one of the things they did was to sort of um, associate, well, his associations with like Bayard Rustin and like A. Philip Randolph, these were secular socialist, openly so, and Bayard Rustin, I believe himself, he was, a, he was also a gay activist. And those affiliations were a way that people would discredit uh, Dr. King as well. When uh, you see someone, like again, King expanded his movement from uh, you know, civil rights for blacks to, to housing discrimination and, and, and uh, worker, workers' rights, and so, yes, exactly, anti-Vietnam stuff. Um, you start to say that they're being infiltrated by this and that, when in fact they're, they're making uh, a broader claim, an intersectional claim. These are really insulting narratives, like incredibly yeah. insulting to to somebody who somebody like a Helen Keller or who spends so much time reflecting and thinking about how to make the world a better place um, and and refining her critique and coming up with exactly the right words she wants to use. She's a beautiful writer to have somebody then take that from her, uh, that agency from her and say, oh, you're clearly a pawn. It's devastating. It's terrifying. Right. Another thing that mm -hmm. ha is happening to her at that point is that a lot of the Espionage Act is put into place in 1917 and uh, along with some other um, anti-freedom legislation, we'll call it, uh, that ends up putting right. a lot of her new friends uh, in jail or on blacklists or unable to work. Um, and even a uh, somebody who had, she had come to respect and, and hang out with from time to time was the famous anarchist Emma Goldman who was deported to Russia. So this was all happening to her. She starts to support the international workers of the world, the Wobblies, and in the labor movement. And, and I think this choice, because there's, there's many ways in that period to get involved in socialism. And one of the things the IWW had is going for it. Uh, it's very radical, first of all. It's, it's, they, they believe in a lot of direct action, uh, wildcat strikes, things like this. Um, but also, they're definitely the most inclusive of like the socialist groupings of the time. That was a big thing for her because she had no patience uh, whatsoever for any kind of prejudice. Um, and so mm. any labor movement that would not include black workers, uh, women workers, whatever, for whatever reason, she was not, not having it. This is not, the, this is not her revolution. This yeah. is not what she's fighting for. You know what's crazy? Something I was thinking about, you know, with, with all of her limitations and disadvantages and lack of senses, it, it, it fosters, well, obviously this is a, a a limitation it's also a benefit in this way it fosters a mindset where she is acutely aware of the ways of the fact that there's stuff she doesn't know you know there, there's a built-in kind of humility so there's un I'm sorry there's known unknowns and she's constantly prepared to to learn more while many of us when we have all of our faculties and all of our senses there's a bravado and, a, and an undue confidence that, yeah, yeah, we we get it. You know, I see I can see this and that. Um, and it's just an interesting way that that our brains can develop, I think. Yeah, it makes it makes total sense. Like it would, it, no matter how much she would learn, she would know instinctively that she doesn't know everything just because 
yeah, she, well, she's dependent on other people to describe so many things that are happening around her every day, every minute. She's having to learn through another person all the time. You know, one of the things I was a little bit, um, I wanted to find more about, but it was really hard in the readings that I found was like really her breakdown of race, like how she understood race growing up um, in a family that, that owned slaves before she was born, but growing up with black servants in the house, uh, severely underpaid, mistreated um, black servants. And I, and I, there's, there's two things to point out about that. So the first was that her, her only friend when she was really young was Martha Washington, who was the daughter of the cook. Um, and so obviously Helen's blind, so she can't perceive blackness visually, but she understood instinctively, even before she understood language, she understood she could get away with things with Martha. Um, so she says, mm. Martha understood my signs. Uh, and at that point, her signs are very basic. They're just kind of like, I want food. Uh, this is mine. Right. And she says, I seldom had difficulty in making Martha do everything I wished. It pleased me to domineer over her. And she generally submitted to my tyranny. So this is her writing in her 20s about her early years before she learned language. And so mm. this is somebody who's feeling a lot of anger about her reality and she's getting pleasure out of taking it out on somebody that she's been able to understand even without seeing and hearing that even without understanding the language that she can get away with things with this she might not she doesn't even know the word black but she there's something about martha that she can get a, she knows she's above her on the hierarchy she can something about martha something about her family something about the society something about there's something here crazy <laughs> and there's a moment where after they're able to talk uh, now, um, at this point, once once Helen has this ability to speak with Anne, uh, where Helen, something happens and Helen's super angry at one of the servants named Viney, and Anne asks, sorry, Helen asks Anne to ask her mom to whip the servant. And mm. Anne immediately goes on a hunger strike and a silent strike and just refuses. Wow to speak to Helen, to be her pathway to the world um, and refuses to eat. And you actually see Ooh. Helen feeling Anne's plate or, and, or see what well, I'm reading the autobiography and, and realizing that, that Anne's not eating, that she's going on hunger strike in protest of what this eight-year-old has said, uh, what she's yeah. asked for. And Helen would, and Anne would not eat or speak to Helen until she apologized to Viney. Uh, for having oh said this. This is all happening with science. Talk about the privilege, the luck of having this particular teacher mm -hmm. to teach those lessons um, and not just mouth them or spell them out, but to like put them in practice, the values and power and uh, standing up for something and having her understand the ways that she's done something wrong. Uh, we can all benefit from some of that yeah and she definitely benefited because you know this was what prepared her to later on develop a long friendship with the wb du bois and mm. the founder of the naacp uh and she actually contributed to his newspaper and she once wrote in another essay this revolt has never slumbered within me since i begin to notice for myself how they she's talking about black people are degraded and with which cold-blooded deliberation the keys of knowledge self-reliance and well-paid employment are taken from them. I think that's mm. just an interesting list, you know, that mm. that they're being they're being denied an appropriate education. This, this is somebody who has had education open up everything for her, uh, and she's become aware that this is being denied, and this is like one of the greatest injustices. And I think this is one that is definitely applicable to today. 
where we see like one of the greatest inequalities in our world is about when it that overlaps with color is education right i think in terms of public education systems and stuff absolutely are you kidding me and all all of that can be traced back to just the the early experiences the early experiences that that we have when our brains are forming our associations with love and respect and trust um and how we relate to, to our to our parents and the other figures that are authority figures and how they relate to us if you don't get a, a proper grounding in that it's it, it's crazy and i think that that's i don't know what the percentages are some some major percentage of our youth population today just simply will not uh, be provided for as a, as a foundational like premise for them to go forth and like live a fucking productive life yeah, you know yeah. i don't yeah. know it's 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 horrifying so she's she's way ahead of just like voting rights and like she's she's not on the topic of the day she's not like oh the topic of the day is uh voting rights and uh desegregation of schools she's all she's already at like no this is everything a human needs for dignity so not everybody's a fan of helen keller and i'm glad i'm not a fan of helen I'm keller i'm glad there's uh i'm gonna screw up her name georgina klieg I believe is her name. Georgina Klieg okay. is a is a professor. She's blind and she is a professor at Berkeley. My complicated relationship with Helen Keller came from childhood. She was held up as this role model that she was deaf and blind, but she was always cheerful and she did well in school and you never heard her complain. I took this very personally. I took it as as a reproach towards me. So I hated Helen Keller, and I loved Helen Keller jokes, and I, you know, told them with relish in the schoolyard. So she hates Helen Keller because Helen Keller provided a very difficult, nearly impossible standard that everyone's sort of then judging other people by, huh? Yeah, uh, I think that's exactly it, and I think the problem here is clearly not Helen Keller. The, right. The problem right. is the way that <coughs> media and stuff would talk about Helen right. Keller. Right. And she definitely wasn't, Helen Keller definitely was an optimist. And she has a whole essay yeah. called Optimism. It's a long essay. She, she has it as a philosophy, basically. Like it's, it's part of her approach to the world, a conscious decision to remain optimistic. I mean, I can see how when, when there's no other model, like literally no other models, like this is the right. blind particularly if you're a woman, this is like the blind woman and she's also deaf. So what are you complaining about? <laughs> right, you know, right. Like, right, right, <laughs> right, imagine. yeah, Jesus, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, do you, have you, do you remember Christopher Hitchens? Of course you do. Yeah, of course, mostly through your impressions of Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, do you remember his, uh, he wrote a screed about um, Mother Teresa. Oh um, yeah, the, the documentary? Yeah, it was a documentary and, a, and a, okay. I think a series of essays, if not a, an essay or a book. I saw the documentary. Um, yeah, yeah, called The Missionary Position. I mean, how <laughs> disrespectful could that be? Um, but, but you know, I Why, bring it like, up only because... You don't like the missionary it's, position? You're anti-missionary position? Or? <laughs> it's a great position. <laughs> it's a great position. I'm for a suite. Yeah. I'm for a suite of positions. Um, yeah. But, she, <laughs> but um, you know, you take this person who seems above reproach and then you, you knock him down a peg. A simple matter of record that she was a fanatic and a fundamentalist and a fraud. Um, <laughs> I think probably the most 
the most successful confidence trickster of the last century um, and responsible for innumerable deaths and for un untold suffering and misery and proud of it. Do you, should I just assert this or would you require any proof? <laughs> I think what Christopher Hitchens did with Mother Teresa seems stronger than what Georgina was doing. It seems, it seems like Mother Teresa, had, there were some legitimate things we could say about her. Oh yeah. Georgina's talking specifically about her relationship to the story of Helen Keller that was presented to her. Gotcha. You know, I think. Right, right, Whereas right, right. what Christopher Hitchens doing is like a deep investigation revealing that the Mother Teresa that was given to us is not the Mother Teresa that actually walked the earth and that she yes. actually played a key role in upholding a lot of injustices. Mm -hmm. how, how, how important is the narrative, Jess? The narratives, yo. Like, who gets to dictate the narratives? Who gets to use the words? Who gets to come up with the words in the first place mm -hmm. and then use them and apply them here and there and sort of shift our focus and narrow our focus and say, this is, this is the issue. This is the thing you should be looking at or this is the way you should be looking at this person. You know, all the people we've talked about, they're famous people um, and they've done all these things in an objective way. And then you've, you've got this layer of the media personas and the hype and the stories that have been told about them. That's outside of their control, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, 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 the, uh, and then we all have to we're all dealing with that story versus, you know, unless you do a deep dive and really, really try to look. And, and Helen Keller was like super aware of this concept just because her day-to-day -day reality was one of dependence on other people for understanding what's happening mm. and what's going on so she always needed to have somebody who could speak with her and th and that became a real problem it's like one of one of the things that that Helen Keller had to deal with was people trying to exploit her because she's an international star who's heavily dependent on different people and her teacher Anne was definitely had control issues uh, wanted Helen mm. wanted total control over over Helen and uh, didn't like one other didn't like anybody else speaking directly to her except people that she knew well like uh, some of her other closer friends like Alexander Graham Bell um, the inventor of the telephone a lot of wealthy liberal type tycoon type characters wanted to help Helen Keller because she needed money always she can't work herself and she kind of lived off the philanthropy of some of these these tycoons um, and she didn't like that. So like, for example, Andrew Carnegie was somebody she deeply distrusted. Uh, this is the guy who donated, uh, I don't know how many millions of dollars and built all the public libraries and, and all these things. And, and, and is probably an, an example of a, of a philanthropist who made, made a big impact on life for many people in the US. But when, when he offered to give her a lifetime pension of $5,000 a year for her life, which would have mm. alleviated a ton of challenges for her, um, and and yeah. she rejected it. And she said that at some point, Carnegie actually threatened to put her over his knee and spank the socialism out of her. Because these were the, she said he was a steel magnate, like he had made his money through exploiting yeah. steel workers and miners and things. And that was her thing. It was like, I'm not taking your dirty money. Wow. You know, I don't want to be your, I don't want to help clean your image after all the damage you've done. And, and his response wow. was like, I'm going to spank the socialism out of you. The sad part of the story is at some point later on in the story, years later, um, he maintains that offer out there and uh, Anne got a horrible flu at some point and they had no money and she eventually accepted the offer when she was in a really mm. desperate situation and Anne was in a really desperate situation. Um, her father wanted to put her in the circus at one point. Her father had lost 
his job and uh but this thing is like relative poverty it's like they still have servants they still own land they, you know they still have all these things and and he's right. like b- b- before giving up on on any of these things he's become accustomed to he's ready to put her in the circus right right this is before everything right this is before she begins to learn all the things that she learns no no this is after yeah so the circus oh. thing come and went as throughout her teenage years okay and yeah so it's she's learned how to talk and that's 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 what she would bouts would be on display it would be like come see the girl that's in all the newspapers on earth uh <laughs> gotcha. you know, come watch her wow. talk and read lips because she could you know she she was brilliant like she she could just put her hand on your face and know what you're saying mm. but if you see who she chose so she was she was able to realize in early age i think that that people are can, there's ex- exploitation's a thing even in her life and uh, and who controls the message and who controls what I guess is really important and, and it's really interesting when you look at the friends that she chose and who she kept close to her and I think Alexander Graham Bell was somebody who actually discovered the telephone a little by accident while he was trying to develop a way for deaf people to hear uh, his mm. mom was deaf and his wife was deaf and he and then after developing the telephone he took the money he made off the telephone and put it all in like betting on that technology which didn't pan out in his lifetime but today is is a real thing there's a lot of people that would have been deaf in previous years that now can hear uh and he was a big part in moving that along and and uh, mark twain which is his pen name but samuel clemens was his real name yeah it's another person but also like like all her friends seemed to be people that had gone through great challenges in their life so mark twain lost a daughter lost his wife to illnesses um and but all these people they're all she surrounded herself with people who had lived real shit, had a sense of perspective had values that they were coherent about that they applied across uh, race class gender all these things and were always intelligent witty people i i, I give her wow. an a plus on her friend choices you know wb du bois and what's up emma goldman mark twain alexander graham bell she did great. that's crazy i should think about how do you even i guess obviously th- those are all very famous people but i think about the ways that today if you were in those circles, you could just, you know, go in someone's DM on Instagram or something. Like, how do you even get in contact with Alexander <laughs> Graham Bell? Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it's fantastic. They went in person, so they were. Yeah, they were right. told. They were told. Oh, they, you know, they said uh, it was actually, it was Helen's mom who had written an uh, article written by Charles Dickens, decades earlier mm. about Laura Bridgman, the first deaf blind person to learn to communicate, and. They told, uh, oh, you, she's at the Perkins School. Talk to Alexander Graham Bell. He can set you up. And so Alexander Graham Bell is actually the guy who ends up setting up her teacher, Annie, who had learned to speak with Laura Bridgman directly uh, when she was at the School for the Blind. Annie, by the way, got to the School for the Blind when the director of the School for the Blind was on a tour of the homeless shelter. And Annie just like ran up and grabbed him and said, I want to learn, I want to learn, I want to learn. Um, and that's because, you know, she had grown up in this homeless shelter and she was just living, a, her brother had just died of tuberculosis in the homeless shelter and, or not just years earlier or whatever. And, and she had been raped and she just had this horrible, horrible childhood of abandonment and, um, and betrayal and of trust and all stuff. And she just was decided education was going to be her way out of this and grabbed this guy yeah. and like would not let him go until he agreed to let her into the school for the blind. And she hated it there because she said she preferred hanging out with the, the sex workers at the homeless shelter because they were more real and less judgmental. Uh, and she found most of the kids that could afford to go to the school for the blind were very wealthy. And 
she didn't like him too much. The only one she got along with was Laura Bridgman, who was deaf and blind. That's how she learned to speak it. And then that's how she ends up becoming Helen Keller's teacher. Nice. There it is, man. Interesting. Wow. Um, Jesus. That's a full, I mean, that's a full life, you know? Yeah. You know, like, I, I just go back to that quote. It's just in my head when she says, like, I lived myself into all things. Insane. Jesse, I take your case for Helen Keller and I see it and I approve of it. I think that she's she's as as advertised. She's dope. Uh, someone to look at and a model, I think. Hopefully without if you can if you can find a way to not be bogged down with the expectation that you match her awesomeness, you know, sound <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Uh, our, our lady, you know, like if you can just take the the wheat, the meat of her narrative and her approach and like apply it. I'm down. She seems dope. Bam. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Billy. Oh, man. And I just want to wonder if you have any thoughts on, on given the current situation, the current state of affairs, allyship. You know, what mm. is, what does it mean to be a good ally? And I don't know if you have any, if you have any thoughts on that. I'm- so an ally where, so this is, this is someone who is uh, participating in a struggle while not necessarily, while not being of the group that while not being directly uh harmed in the same way as as the main group right participating yeah exactly yeah that's what struggle. i would call it um i mean i i would argue based on the work of james baldwin that we're all affected by injustices mm-hmm. you know like uh i always yes. love that quote he has when he says you know when you he was talking about seeing the police officer in the south uh clubbing this woman at a nonviolent protest and saying what's happening to that to this black woman is barbaric and it's horrible but at some level what's happening inside the heart of that policeman is like as terrible i don't know exactly what words he uses you know just to 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 have him in a state where he can do something like this anyway so yeah just to say i think i think when you remove injustices life gets better for everybody exactly uh, but but yeah so on this point it would be like to be a white person in solidarity with this with the black uh liberation movement or black lives matter you know, I think on a fun, like there there are a ton of things I could say that are uh, practical, practical things to do, like go to this website and speak. You know, da 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 da. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think on a very fundamental level, it is to like engage in that conversation in a deep and serious way. That conversation thing I tried to touch on earlier about the volleys between you know honesty and empathy, over and over to constantly go back to that, even though it's difficult and even though it'll probably be weird and there'll be things you won't understand like necessarily because you're an ally you're outside of the the experience um perhaps so you're trying to listen and you're trying to understand and you're and you're, and you're sharing your information um and once you do that i think and you have some good partnership with partnership with with the group with the people in the group who can help and provide the honesty for you to for you to grow from um like other things will come you know once you're really doing that i think in a genuine way like the practical application of a set of like things will will go so i think it's 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 weird because you know as we try to as we're all kind of dealing with this current situation we're trying to figure out how we should move in it you know sometimes you hear it's it's people's expression of people's desire to see allyship manifest in certain ways so like did the person did the white person change their profile picture on facebook into a black thing you know and that's an expression of allyship but it's an expression it's a it's it's part of a much broader thing like if you're looking for that 
you may find that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're dealing with someone who's a genuine ally. That's, right, right. A, that's a performance of a kind. Mm. And sometimes performance is part of it, you know, but yeah. it's not Sometimes all it's the first it, step. Sometimes it's, I change my profile picture and then step. I try to live yeah. up to it. It's like, okay, now I'm going to exactly. try to live up to this profile picture of mine. Exactly. You know. So the so it's like when we try to understand who's who and we try to like, it's, it's like we got to do both and we've got to just, the real question isn't profile pictures or statements or whatever. It's like a continual conversation and having someone really purposefully, consciously, deliberately walk towards that conversation and approach and say, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to learn. I'm ready to share and learn. There was this article that, that uh, a lot of uh, white folks were sharing around that was like, whenever a black person is expressing uh, something they've lived, the correct response is, I see you, I'm sorry, that must be awful, or that's awful. And that's what you're supposed to say. It's like a script or something, right? And then mm. a bunch of people were posting it with writing, I see you, I'm sorry, that's awful. And and while I get the spirit of what the article was trying to say, I, I just was imagining this like army of, 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 <laughs> of white people walking around just being like, yeah. I see you, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. that's awful. Exactly. And it's like, and it's like totally the opposite of what you're describing, which is like a very real attempt at vulnerability and empathy and, and sharing, you know, and like, uh, seeing eye to eye and some of that. So I just, yeah, there's like, yes. it's, things are going yes. in a lot of different directions. That's hilarious. That, but the, yeah. it, that's exactly right. But again, it's you just you know you want. It's hard to measure that that conversation from an external space watching. You know, it's mm -hmm. just so we try to find the points that we can determine as like indicators, and some of those are valid ways to try to understand. But it's you know, but, but we're, we're talking about something more, and I think uh, that's what allyship is. And that's why I wanted to do somebody today who I thought was a model. Because I think you can learn a lot more by, by learning, by, by modeling a, a person than like trying to figure out, oh, how you're supposed to respond to every possible situation. You know, it's like, be able to ask yourself, what would Helen Keller do? What would, you mm -hmm. know, what would Jesus do? What would whatever it's Jesus like, do? You know, pick, I think like there's a lot more power in that. And I think that's, that's it's, an, it's, a, it's a more complete and thorough way of becoming a better person. Agreed, bro. Agreed. So yeah, exactly. Helen Keller is exactly. a model ally. All right, man. Much love. Thank you, bro. Uh, episode six is done. Awesome. I'll be doing some thinking, and it'll be my turn to uh, play lead. Jesse, you did an excellent job, and I appreciate you, man. Until next time, bro. Yes, sir. Remember to uh, like, subscribe, reviews, whatever you do. Billy and I want, Please, want all to, of it. We want to talk. We're hot to chat and share. Uh, <laughs> and if you have any uh, reflections, you can hit us up at uh, whereisnowshow at gmail.com.